1 Peter chapter 5, and the text we look at today starts at verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, I'd, I'd like to say that there's a Bible you can borrow at the back tables. You're more than welcome to make use of that as well. Now, as we've been going through this final chapter in the book of 1 Peter chapter, uh, well, 1 Peter rather, uh, Peter is giving us some final instructions on how to live a victorious Christian life while we are still in this world. Now, in our previous study, we saw that we need to submit ourselves. These are some, some of the aspects that he highlights. We need to submit ourselves. And we need to submit ourselves not only to the pastor, as he mentions there from verse 1. We also need to submit ourselves to each other. Um, and next, as a partner to submission, he says that we should humble ourselves. These are all things you need to do to yourself. Humble yourself, so much so that he says there in verse 5 that we should be clothed with humility. That means dress yourself with humility. This humility should be towards our fellow man. Whether they are saved or not, we should always be clothed with humility. And also, most importantly, we should humble ourselves towards God. He says there in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So it's um, submission, humility, and then in verse 7, he says that we should trust God. He says there in verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That is trusting on him. That fits well with the song we just sang, eh? leaning on the everlasting arms. We, we can trust him because he cares for us. We can cast all of those cares on him. You know, uh, the further that life goes, it seems like the, the cares of this world just piles on, right? Just day by day. It's just more and more and more, more things to worry about. You know, we worry about whether or not we'll get a job or whether or not we'll keep our job. We worry about how to pay the bills. We worry about our wives, our husbands, our children, and just a million other things. A lot of cares in this world. And then Peter says here, cast all your cares upon him, upon God. Why? Well, because he cares for you. Isn't that a blessing to know that God cares for us? You know, God is more than happy to take your cares off of your shoulders and let you cast it on him, throw it on him. You know, it's almost like you throw some baggage onto a donkey or a horse or something. You know, you just cast it on him. Now, notice he doesn't say that he takes the problems away. All right? But he does take your cares it's an important distinction, but he will carry your cares for you because he cares for you. It's good to be reminded of that, I think. And then that brings us to the next point. So we've got submission, humility, trust in God, and then in verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He says to be sober. Now this is the, the third time actually that Peter mentions being sober in this epistle. Maybe you can turn with me to um, chapter 1. I think it's so important being sober-minded. You know, that it needs to be repeated over and over again. Uh, verse 13, he says, Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. You see that? Gird up the loins of your mind. All right? Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. When talking about being sober on a physical level, we are talking about not being intoxicated by alcohol or any other substance, all right? We mostly refer to somebody as sober because it's the opposite of being drunk or high or anything else like that, all right? That's basically it. Someone who is, in, who is sober is in full control of their minds and of their behavior, all right, on a physical level. Now, that's not entirely the topic here, all right, but it does go without saying that Christians should not be under the influence of alcohol or any other substance. I think everybody knows that. We should be physically sober at all times. We should be in control of our minds. We should be in control of our behavior at all times. But it is used here more metaphorical, all right, and, and it's the same way in in uh, many places in the Bible, it's used in a metaphorical way. Um, so in the same way that somebody that is sober from alcohol exercises self-control and self-discipline not to be intoxicated by it, in that same way, we need to be sober from being intoxicated from the cares of life. All right? We need to have our priorities in the right order. Someone that is not physically sober, or, um, yeah, that is not physically sober has prioritized the intoxication and the substances over anything else that might be profitable. Their priorities are not right. Let me remind you about the parable of the soils, uh, because I think Jesus described this beautifully for us. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 13, Mark 4, Luke 8. We won't read it now. I'll just summarize it quickly. Well, I'll try to do it quickly. <laughs> but Jesus said that the sower went out and he sowed some seed. Some of the seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and they devoured it. Interesting, it's the same word that we find here. It, they devoured it. Some of the seed fell on the stony ground and so the plants sprung up quickly because there wasn't a lot of soil. Right? So they can't, couldn't get their roots in deeply. And so the plants sprung up quickly, and when the sun came up, it scorched those weak little plants, and they withered away. Some of the seeds fell among the thorns, and those plants came up, and they were promptly choked by those thorns, and they were not able to bear any fruit. They became unfruitful, Jesus said. And then some other seed fell on good ground, and we know that they were able to bear lots of fruit. Now, do you remember what the meaning was of of these different soils and so on. Jesus said that the seed is the word of God and the soils are the hearts of men. And so some people get the word of God sown in their hearts and right after they heard it, I mean like that, the devil comes, he snatches it up, he devours it, he takes it away, and they forget about it. Some, some people get the word of God sown into, into their hearts, they accept it, and they believe it, they're so excited about it, man, they run with it. And as soon as they hit some resistance, or just a little bit of problems along the way, they start to wither away, because their faith was only superficial. They had no root in them. And then you have those that hear the word, 
And then the cares of this world comes in. That, that, those are the thorns. The cares of the world. That's the, that's the thing that, that people love of this world. All of those things. All the different entanglements that the world may have. Um, Jesus also mentioned the deceitfulness of riches. That comes in and it chokes the word. And that person becomes unfruitful. That person is totally intoxicated by the affairs and the lusts of this life and of this world, he doesn't have his priorities in order, all right? And so he becomes unfruitful. And then there is the person that hears the word, and he just simply does what it says. How simple is that? He's sober-minded. He has his priorities in order. He's not swept away by his emotions and his different passions, all right? He has an eternal perspective, as opposed to the one that simply just cares of the things of this life, all right? Because those things are not eternal. Those things are temporal, right? As soon as we leave this earth, we're going to leave all those things behind. We all know that. But do we keep that in mind? Are we sober-minded? Are our priorities in order? This person that has his priorities in order is able to bear a ton of fruit for the Lord. Um, Let's turn to Titus chapter 2 for a moment. Titus chapter 2. We'll see what Paul wrote about being sober. Titus 2 verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. How do you stay sober? Well, by denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's how you do it. So let's go back to First Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> we'll get the next point. So he said, be sober. Verse 8. Now he says, be vigilant. Be vigilant. What is that? That is stay awake. Okay? Be alert. Be on the lookout. Keep your eyes open. All right? Why? Well, he continues there. He says, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So you better watch out. Now, being vigilant obviously starts with, I think, recognizing the reality of our spiritual enemy. You know, if you don't think that he exists, then why would you care about being vigilant? It wouldn't make sense, right? Why, why, why watch out for an enemy that doesn't exist? And there are people that claim to believe the Bible that deny that the devil actually exists as a person. I can remember that some, a few years ago, it, it was a major topic in one of the Christian denominations uh, where some people said that when the Bible talks about the devil, it's actually making reference to some impersonal evil force that's within every person, right? That, that, that's more or less the teaching there. But that's obviously not true, folks. And it's so easy to disprove. Just open your Bible, all right? So let's do that. I'll just mention three simple cases about that. Um, we, won't, we won't turn to these because you know most of these. But first off, we come to the very first time that we read about the devil. When is that? That's in the garden. 
right? Genesis chapter 3, right? Um, we read about how he came and he tempted Eve, and he did that before there was any sin in this world. That's important. Because if the devil was only some sort of evil that's already within a person, how was he able to tempt Eve? Because that happened before there was any sin. And then that would mean that God created man with evil already inside of him. That doesn't sound right. That, that, that doesn't match up what the Bible teaches. After God created man, we read that God looked at everything. That's Genesis chapter 2. And he said that it is very good. Very good. So if there was evil in it, why would he call it very good? That's not good. Okay? That's maybe a little good, but a lot of evil. It was only after Adam sinned that sin entered into the world. We know from Genesis chapter 3 also that, that Eve personally spoke to the serpent, to the devil, right? Um, right there in the garden. And we also know that God spoke to the devil, right? When, when, when he called them together and he, he cursed all of them, he spoke directly to the devil. And he also foretold that the woman's seed, who's that? Jesus Christ, will one day bruise the head of the serpent. Why would he do that if it's just some sort of impersonal force, some, something? And then we come to when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, all right? He also directly spoke to the devil. Every single time the devil tempted him, he came back with him with Scripture. Every single time. Um, now get this. If the devil was some sort of evil that is already present within somebody, and Jesus was tempted by the devil and was there in the wilderness, it was only the devil and him, that would mean that Jesus had some evil in him, right? Is that what we know about Jesus? <laughs> That's not Jesus. That's not my Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible, all right? If he had evil in him, folks, Jesus couldn't pay for any of our sins. He couldn't. He would have to answer for his own sins. He couldn't have risen from the dead if he had evil in him. And he most certainly would not have been God if he had any evil in him. And then in, in John chapter 8, we read there in, there in verse 44. I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to listen to the personal pronouns when Jesus, that Jesus uses when he's talking about the devil. All right? He says to the Jews there, Ye are of your father the devil. Have you ever heard that? Eh? Has anybody ever told you that? <laughs> ye are of your father the devil. Well, the, And the lusts of your father ye will do. Now listen to this. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Did you hear all those personal pronouns? He, him, he is, you know. Um, Jesus also tells us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Okay, that's, that's a, a personal attribute of the devil, and he is the father of lies. Now tell me this, how can Jesus refer to some kind of impersonal force, some, some sort of evil that's, that's in people in this kind of way? It sounds to me like he's talking about a person, right? He's talking about someone, and he identifies that person for us at the beginning of that verse as the devil. Now there are 
tens, if not hundreds <laughs> of examples like this that we can pull from Scripture to disprove this theory that the Bible is not an actual person. Very easy to do. You know, God surely seems to think that the devil is a person, that he does exist, um, and that he, well, yeah, that he is real. So, in the, at the end of the day, I would rather believe what he says about this fact than just some guy that's sitting in his study, you know, trying to think about all sorts of personal interpretations, private interpretations of God's Word. It, it, it's a sad thing. You know, I love the, theologians. I love theology. I really do. And I, I, I love the things that people use to explain the Word of God to me, to help me learn it better, to help me get it um, in my heart. But then you get some of these guys that really it seems as if they're just sitting around, just trying to think of some new thing because they want to make a name for themselves. And that's where you get these private interpretations being conjured up. Folks, the devil is real. <laughs> but I have to admit that this lie of him not being real is a great strategy, at, the, at least from his point of view, right? If he can convince believers that he does not exist or even just make them forget about him, well, then they would simply let their guard down and they would be easy pickings, right? He can just devour them. He can have his way with them. And that's why this warning from Peter is so important. We need to be sober. We need to be vigilant at all times because this enemy should not be underestimated, right? Now, we've learned a lot about what's going on in the spiritual realm recently and things related to that, I think in the past week or so. I don't know if it's been two weeks, but I won't repeat those things today. Um, but we need to be aware of those things, folks. Uh, if for no other reason, because it's part of Scripture. It's the things that God revealed to us. He wants us to know those things. He doesn't want us to know more than that. He wants us to know what's in the Bible. All right? But notice here what Peter is saying. You won't find Peter saying, be afraid. He doesn't say, be sober, be vigilant, be scared. <laughs> he doesn't say that, all right? You do not have to be afraid. You need to be sober, you need to be vigilant, and you need to resist him, as we'll see when we come to verse 9. Now, look at verse 8 again. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, your adversary, that's, that's very personal, isn't it? Because it's your adversary. It's my adversary. And he's walking around. You know, we, we see different, uh, different strategies that the devil uses to attack people. But he's walking around like a roaring lion, even today, looking for somebody to devour. And you might just be on that menu today. So you better be awake. You better be vigilant. Be sober. We see, these, uh, we see the devil and his underlings attack people in either a very direct way or an indirect way, you know, using subtlety. Uh, we have some great examples of how he attacks directly in the Bible. I think one of the most famous and, um, is the story of Job, isn't it? And a great lesson that we can learn from that story of Job is that Satan needs to ask permission to attack. Do you remember that from Job chapter 1? He had to ask God permission. He was, uh, and God gave him permission to touch everything that Job had, 
but he was just not allowed to kill him. You know what that means? It means the devil's on a leash. <laughs> God's got him on a leash, all right? Um, he can only go so far. God may allow him to t- attack his people, and he, and he does that for very specific purposes. He can do that to either test them, to strengthen their faith. He can use it to punish them. He can use it just to, to use you as a good example like he did with, with Job. But even though Satan sometimes attacks directly, I think he mo- more commonly attacks us in a very indirect way. And let me explain. When I say indirect, I, I mean he's using the world system to attack us, to influence us. Because he's in charge of it, isn't he? <laughs> Right, three times in the book of John, um, I'm just going to rattle these off. It's John 12, verse 31, John 14, verse 13, John 16, verse 11. Every time Jesus refers to the devil as the prince of this world, he currently rules this place. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. So that takes it even a little bit further. Not only does he rule this world, but he also rules, you know, all the unclean spirits and all, all of those things that's going on there. He has a lot of influence. <laughs> and we should take note that his attacks are not just limited to believers. Take your Bible. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Satan is not content to only attack believers. He would rather stop people from becoming believers in the first place. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3. Look what Paul writes here. He says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, you see that title, it's called not only the prince of this world, he's the God of this world, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should, not, should shine unto them. So what he does is he, he blinds their minds. So what is that? That, that means he, he spreads all sorts of false ideas, all sorts of false uh, philosophies um, into the world system in order to keep the minds of unbelievers blinded so that they cannot accept the gospel. They can't hear it at all. There are worldviews and philosophies that's been around for thousands of years that's still getting promoted today. Um, But it also seems like every other week there's some new strange thing. What was that? Did I do something? No? Okay. There's some strange thing. Every, Every once in a while, just getting spread out into the world again, a new idea. It seems new. Most of them are based on older things, all right? But every now and again, you know, they, we, we see them start off rather obscurely. You might hear about it here or there, maybe read something about it, and then all of a sudden, it spreads like wildfire. You know, they say it, it goes viral, right? It just spreads everywhere, and then it sort of dies down. It, it, it's like it fizzles out, you know, that you will still find people that believe this thing, but it sort of fizzles out. It, it goes away from the, from the headlines and stuff like that, but then You'll find the new thing coming up and spreading again. These things come in waves like that. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's, it's been bothering me for a, for a long time just seeing that. Every now and again, there's this new thing coming up, coming up. Have you ever wondered where these ideas come from? 
That's a good question, isn't it? Well, Paul told us here in, in verse 4, it's the God of this world that's spreading those lies to, to blind people. He's layering these ideas, all right, and packing it onto their, call it their, their, their mind's eye, you know, packing it on there just to keep them blinded. And that's why some people need to hear truth and be under truth and hear it over and over and over again. And you, as a Christian, you get tired of it because this guy just does not get it. And it's so simple. It's not simple to him. He's blinded. All right? And so they need to be under this constant treatment, I want to say, of truth to get rid of all those lies. It's a sad state (laughs) that the world is in. Right? But the, the devil uses this world system in order to have a much wider impact. You can imagine, I mean, the devil is only one, and then, okay, obviously he's got some number of evil spirits that he also controls, but, but that's a finite number, all right? So he, he can't come to every person personally. If he would do that and try to attack every person personally, it will take a long time. You won't have such a great blast radius. What you do is you spread something, you poison the water, right? You spread something into the world system, and you use a shotgun approach and hit as many people as you can. Isn't that how you go hunting for ducks, right? (laughs) The ducks fly up and you use a shotgun to shoot it. If you would use some other sort of rifle, you better be good. (laughs) You better be a great shot in order to do that, all right? But that's just a smart strategy to use. You know, this system obviously also attacks believers. And it attacks us at our weakest spot, which is what? It's our flesh. It's our flesh. That's the weakest spot on us. You see, they they can't take our souls away anymore. If you want to take my soul away, (laughs) all right, take it for you, you'll have to overthrow God. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. But what they can do is they can tempt us. They can tempt us very strongly. They can tempt us very persistently. They tempt us to sin. Or they tempt us to be so entangled with the things, the cares of this world. All right? So that we become totally unfruitful for God. That's where they want us as believers. They want us unfruitful. Because then you're not making any, any headway, right? You're not making any damage to their kingdom. All right? John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, that we should not love the things of this world, all right? And he, he, and all, all the world even. And, and he summarized the attacks in John, oh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 like this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those three things come from the world. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan develops this world system to play into the lust of the flesh and the eyes and also to fulfill the pride that one can achieve in this life. He wants to have you successful, right? Because that's where the pride comes from, okay? If you want to, if you want to see all, of the, all three of these things in action in, in a single spot, just go to your favorite social media platform, all right? Because that's what you find there. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of that is there in one spot. Now, I'm not saying that social media by itself is evil, all right? And I'm not saying that that's the only place, place that you can be tempted like that. Not at all. That's just one of the gears in this vast 
world system, this complicated organism, I want to say, right, that, that, that's against us. Folks, the world is full of things that the flesh will last after. You know that. If you've been alive for two minutes, you know that, right? And you will be bombarded with it day in and day out. It's relentless, all right? Another way that Christians get attacked by the devil is, is obviously by attacking the church. Now, once again, this lets him have a wider impact than just going to believer and believer, believer, right? He has a much wider impact like that. And one of the ways that he attacks the church is by attacking the pastors or the elders, as, as Peter mentioned them. By the way, we can come back to First Peter chapter 5. But um, Peter called them the elders. It's the pastors. We went through that before. And that's one of the reasons why we have such specific requirements for a pastor, you know, that Paul mentioned in First Timothy chapter 3. He said things like, he must be blameless, he must be the husband of one wife, he must be sober, <laughs> he must be vigilant, all right? He must not be given to wine, and, and on and on he goes. And then at the end there in First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7, he said this, this is why that pastor should have these qualities already before he becomes the pastor, all right? He says, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's why. Folks, we've seen the disastrous consequences in churches all over the world where, where the men that lead it don't match up with those qualifications. And it's inevitable, inevitable that they will go down the path of not preaching or teaching the Bible, not living according to the Bible, and they get hung up on a bunch of false teachings that make people feel like they are spiritual, but in actual fact they're not. That's so sad. <laughs> and and, and the, these men then, even though they are well-intentioned, they might be just misled, but they become well-intentioned false teachers. Or like Jude said in Jude 1 verse 17, they become like clouds without water. What's that? Oh man, we've seen that. Eh? We've seen the clouds come over and we think, oh, it's going to be a some nice rainy day, and then oh, the wind just blows it. Um, away. We think there's a lot of substance there, but there's nothing. There's just nothing. It's just air. Now, of course, Satan doesn't only, only attack the leadership in the church. He attack, attacks church members as well. He attacks all of us. Okay? And he, he attacks the unity in the church. He does that by sowing discord among the brethren. Alright? We know that. He floods the general Christian I want to say community with false teachings. What do I mean by that? That's, that's like, you know, your co-workers that might also be believers, you know, and you have a chat with them and they come up with some weird thing, you know. I, I don't know how many of you have had that experience. I've heard many weird things in my life already where people say they're Christians, they're believers, and they might be, right? But they come up with these weird ideas, false teachings, and that also seeps into the church to, once again, poison the water. He lets people de-emphasize the Bible and emphasize all sorts of other superstitions. And in that way, folks, the church loses all its power and she doesn't know what she is supposed to do anymore. She has no idea because she's, 
she becomes blinded. The church then thinks that they're effective, but there's, there's nothing. What do we do about this? It's a big problem, right? Well, Peter told us. First off, be sober. Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Be on the lookout. Right? That's what we need to do. Keep an eye open for these attacks, folks. Don't sleep on the job. We don't have time for that. Don't let him devour you. Because he will. He will. Don't think, oh no, it won't happen to me. Well, if you're not vigilant, it might. So what then? What do we do then? Okay, we're sober, we're vigilant. What now? Well, some people think, well, now that this is the time where we chase Satan away. Right? Some people have all sorts of rituals and prayers and incantations that they do and, and, and they use it for chasing the devil away. I mean, you've, you've probably experienced that, maybe taken part of that. One, one example of this that I, I've thought, out, thought about many times is, is how people let somebody come in when they are moving into a house. Or maybe they've stayed at the house and they've hit some problems. It's either that or they're moving into a new house and they don't want any problems. And so they let this person come in and they're going to anoint the house. And so what they do is they walk to every corner of the property, they have their oil and they anoint the property, they anoint the house everywhere, right? And they do their prayers and all of these things. Christian witch doctors, right? That's, that, that's what it is, right? And, and, and so they do that and they actually think that's going to do the trick. <laughs> wow. As if Satan is going to come to the house, you know, he's going to climb over the fence, he's going to walk to the corner and, whoa, slip on the oil and say, whoa, okay, whoa, whoa, I better leave. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, folks. That's a waste of time. It's a waste of oil, right? Your property might smell like a fish and chip shop, but that's, that's about it. If you like that smell, well, there you go. <laughs> Some people go on and say, well, Satan, I bind you. You've heard that, right? Wow, I love that echo. I want to do that again. No. <laughs> but they say that, right? So seriously, are you going to bind Satan? Like seriously, right? With what? You know, I heard a preacher when he was talking about this ask this question. How long does this binding last? Is it a week? Month? Maybe a day? How long does it go? How, how, how long does it work? And if I bind him here... Does that mean that everybody else can now relax, you know, until he sort of escapes from my binding? How does this work, right? People don't think about this. They're not sober-minded. They're not vigilant. I know of one person that's going to bind him, right? We read about him in Revelation chapter 20. God sends an angel, a mighty angel, with a huge chain, and he's going to bind up the devil for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. That's where the devil gets bound, all right? You're not going to do it question, what do we do then? <laughs> we're sober, we're vigilant, how do we fight back? Read on, verse 9, just read the Bible. <laughs> he says, talking about the devil, whom resist steadfast in the faith. That's what we should do. We resist him. We resist him. James 4 verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. <laughs> you resist him and he will run away. How do we resist him? What does that mean? Well, the word used here for resist is, is the same word as just saying stand up. Stand up against him, right? Just stand up against the devil. If you stand up against him, he'll, he'll free from you. Oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, um, stand up against the devil, and he will flee, right? You don't have to bind him. How do we stand up to him? Well, 
This is great, okay, because it's so simple. It really is simple. And, and, and Peter ta- tells us here, he says, Whom resist? How? Steadfast in the faith. That's how you do it. Steadfast in the faith. What's that? Well, that's everything that's revealed to us in God's Word. You know it. You believe it. You make it part of your life. You do what it says. That's how you resist the devil. You stand in that, steadfast in the faith. And you allow it to change you, to become the person that the Lord wants you to be. You don't need to go and put on boxing gloves and fight the devil. (laughs) We don't do that. Steadfast in the faith. You know, Jude tells us in Jude verse 3 that it's the faith once delivered unto the saints. That's the faith. This faith doesn't evolve. It doesn't change and get, get stuff added to it. No, it was once delivered. It's settled. It's right here. It's, it's right here on this pulpit. It's in your lap. That's God's word. And that's what we go with. We sta- stand in the faith. Stand in the faith. Folks, Satan is the father of lies. So the only way to stand up against the father of lies is by knowing believing and obeying the truth of the Word of God. It's the only way. If your memories and your thoughts are just filled with, with the Word of God and you, you constantly expose yourself to biblical teaching, biblical preaching of the Word, and you, and you diligently apply what it tells you to, uh, to do, Satan will flee from you. Simple as that. Very simple. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's not oil and words. All right? That's not how you fight the devil. Our weapons are not carnal. We resist him steadfast in the faith. And then he he continues there at the end of verse 9. Well, let's read verse 9 again. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. That's great, right? He's reminding us we're not alone. (laughs) We've got each other, right? We've got each other. All the brethren in the world can empathize with each other because all of us experience the attacks of the adversary. So we can share with each other. We can pray for each other. We can help each other. We've got each other. The Lord's been faithful in providing everything we need. Let's, Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us your word. It's got everything we need. (laughs) Lord, you've told us we don't need to be afraid. Lord, you've told us to stand in your word, stand in the faith. Help us to do that. Please help us today, Lord, that the, the enemy won't come and steal these seeds out of our hearts. Will you please help us, Lord, to apply what we're learning today? this lesson and whatever's coming in the sermon next, Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for being with us. You're so faithful. You're so loving, and you care so much for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.